there's sort of a silver side of grief that we don't really talk about a lot, which is um, that everything that's beautiful becomes way more beautiful in that season of grief. Welcome to Sing, Coach, Conduct, the podcast for singers and singing teachers. Hi, Andrea. It's really nice to have you on the show. It has been a while that we've been trying to make this happen, and I'm just so pleased to be with you. I feel like you don't even really need an introduction because I feel like a lot of people that listen to this, are they're already going to know who you are, but you are a fabulous composer, educator, conductor, um, and I, I could go on about you, but I want to learn about you. So tell us anything you want about yourself. Oh, it's such a wide open question, right? Like, who are you? How do you sum that up? <laughs> um, um, well, who I am right now is a person who lives in Kansas City, Missouri, and writes music and works with choirs on very limited short-term bases. Bases, <laughs> um, where I go uh, to 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 work with honor choirs or all states or different festivals to adjudicate or whatever. But I grew up. Um, not in a city, but actually very much in the country. We lived on a dirt road about 30 minutes out of town, but really an hour school bus ride in northeast Arkansas, rural Arkansas. We had about 10 acres. Our neighbor has had about 36 acres. And between my, me and my brother and the two neighborhood boys who lived across the different pastures, we knew like every inch of that land and the creeks and the streams and all of that. So it was, it was kind of idyllic. Uh, bit of childhood until you got to the age where you wanted to be in town and do things with your friends. And then maybe that was a little less convenient, but all of those nature things um, and, and that quiet, I think really shaped me and probably my creativity too, to some degree, because you had to be imaginative. There wasn't a lot to do. And we had like two TV channels and like three after a rainstorm, you know, it was like a tricky thing like that. And um yeah, and then and so I went to a county school for a long time, and then uh, my junior year we moved to the grand metropolis of Jonesboro, Arkansas, which at that time had about forty eight thousand people in it, and uh, a really great high school choir program, and that was where I sort of found my home. I was singing in choir before then, but uh, but I remember the first day in that choir, I really struggling to sing because I just wanted to listen because I was like, wow, it's like this. I didn't know it could be like this. And I was really grateful that I had music as an inroad because it's really hard to move to a new school your junior year. And that was an easy way. And then once I auditioned for the musical, you have like a new family and that, and, and I was able to make connections with people that way. What was the music? What was the first musical? Yeah, it was Oklahoma. And you know, the really fun thing, I don't think I've ever told this story, but I had a, uh, like, this is one thing that was weird too, is I was moving to this new school, but my boyfriend was already at this school. Like we had met in a community choir and um, he was like, you should audition for the musical. You'll probably get in the chorus, you know, somewhere. Cause I had at that County school, like I was getting cast with lines, but I didn't know anything about acting. And now I'd moved to a school that had a legit drama department and I didn't know anything about acting, but I could sing. And they cast me as Aunt Eller. And I remember like we went for our first date after the casting stuff came out and he was cast as Judd. And he was like, you actually have more lines than me. And I was like <laughs> thinking to myself, you counted all of those lines. And I was like, yeah, weird. This is not good. And then like the week of tech, he was all like pretending he was a method actor backstage. And I was like, I'm going to stay in character this week. And, and I just don't want to, I don't want to weird you out. And like, I was like, you are all like gross and Judd is your character. Like it was creepy. I was like, yeah, no, we're probably breaking up before long. So did, did you, did you break up soon after that? Yeah, but it wasn't because of that. Like, I got over that because the show ended. But like, yeah, it was funny. But um, yeah, I was I was cast often as as elderly people, I think, because my speaking voice is kind of low. I don't know. I think it was more believable. I don't know. I sort of feel that way. You know, yeah. I always thought that I could never be cast as Dorothy. 
You know, I, I just don't have that sweet, mm. like high pitched. I don't, I don't even know how to do it. So yes, I, I totally feel you on that. Yeah, there's, there's something great about being a matronly high schooler. I yeah. don't know. <laughs> sure. Now, are you a soprano or are you a mezzo soprano? I'm a mezzo. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Cause I mean, I, I have a lower speaking voice, but I'm a soprano and sometimes it's hard to tell. So, okay. So go on because, so you're at the school and you had, and you audition, you've got the musical yeah, going and you're so part of this the program. Musical. Yeah. I'm part of this program. And I just, I fell in love and this choir director, Gary Morris, um, still to this day, I was able to see him last summer when I did a, an honor choir in Arkansas. It was so sweet, but, um, I credit so much to him because I, I learned about phrasing from him. I learned about, um, gosh, so many things about musicianship, sight reading, you know, just all of these skills that I didn't have that I gained from him. Um, and he always just went above and beyond. Like, I remember us going to state contest and he literally hauled a harpsichord down for this pocketball piece we were doing. And I was like, who, you know, like, it was just, he was very dedicated and, um, and it was it was really special, and I thought this. I think this is what I want to do. I think I want to um, teach choir, and and also in the back of my mind, my my parents had said neither of my parents had gone to college. I was the first in my family to to do so, and um, in my immediate family, rather, I had a grandma who was a teacher, but um, my my parents were in my ear. They're like, "Do get your education, like get good grades. You have to get scholarships." You have to go to college and do something you love, like because they both had jobs they didn't enjoy. My dad worked for the railroad. My mom uh, stayed home with us, and then eventually worked at the DMV, um, renewing car tags and driver's licenses. And um, so, yeah, so they were in both of our ears, me and my brother, and and the both of my brother. It clearly stuck because we both have doctorates, and he teaches at a university in Pennsylvania. And, um, were they excited that you were going into music? Was that something that they supported you going into music? Yeah. I mean, I think they were just so excited that I was going to college and I was doing something I loved. Yeah, music, great. You know, we, we were ignorance is bliss, right? It was that, like, my daughter's going to college and I'm so proud and she's chasing her passion. Yes. Yeah. My dad took the, uh, you know, you're going to be living in a box, basically. Like, if you go into music, you're not going to make any money. You're going to live in a box. That was his thing. And I, so I went ahead and did it anyway. So I'm happy to hear that your parents were like, we're just so happy you're going to college. Because I also was a, a first generation go to college, finish college mm. person. So yeah. it's in, so yeah. I'm so glad that your parents were supportive of that. That's great. They were chill, complete cheerleaders. They were just great. Um, um, where was, where were we? Where, I, I, yeah. So I decided, so part of it was uh, this choir director who was so great. The other part of it was I knew that I could stack a music scholarship with an academic scholarship and that this is how I was going to afford college. So this makes sense to try and pursue a music degree because I love it. And this teacher's made an impact. And also this might be how I can pay for college. So I didn't really have a backup plan. If I went in and this music major thing didn't work, I don't know, but thankfully I thankfully I had enough piano. Like I took piano sort of on and off for like two, two and a half years from whoever the cheapest church lady was in town. And um and so I had like enough to survive, you know. Mm -hmm. Um but I would have been in trouble without that. And I think actually that's something that I think about a lot that we have a real problem with in higher ed is access and students who are rural or lower socioeconomic or who were like young Andrea who maybe if they hadn't had parents who were like sacrificing and like nickel and diming a few piano lessons here or there, like that's a student who, who fails out. Right. And we don't have onboarding for students who need voice lessons or piano lessons. We just expect that they have access to that beforehand, where if they want to go teach history or English, they're pretty much ready to go coming out of high school. That's a good point. But with music. Yeah. There's some built in barriers there that we have to sift through, but we're not. <laughs> But we need to. So, where did you decide you wanted to go to college? Uh, I went to Arkansas Tech University in in Russellville, Arkansas. Yeah, just a small state school, but it was exactly what I needed at that time. It was great. So, you knew you wanted to be in music, and you knew you wanted to be a choir director. Mm -hmm. You get to Arkansas Tech, and um, and then where does you know where does life take you from there? I was singing in choirs, um, but I had, so I, the first piece I ever wrote was my senior year of high school, but I didn't know what I was doing. It was very secret. Um, I had my little keyboard 
that wasn't even 88 keys. And I was drawing staff paper because at that point we didn't have household printers really, you know, um, I didn't have staff paper. So I, I, and I was obsessed with in our choir, we've been singing William Byrd's Ave Verum Corpus. And I was just transported every time we would sing it. I felt like I was in some cathedral and not in a high school in Arkansas. And, um, and I thought I'm going to write my own Ave Verum Corpus. And I didn't know what I was doing, but I, I wrote one. It took me a whole year drawing my little staff paper lines. But when I got to college and was in theory, I thought this is, oh, I don't, I did, I didn't do this right. Now I know part writing rules. Let's go back and let's fix the Ave Verum Corpus with the part writing rules. So I went and like adjusted it for the part writing rules. And then I took it to my choir director and like a cocky freshman, I was like, I made this thing. What do you think? You know? And so he played through it and he said, you know, Andrea, if you revise this one section, we will do this in the fall. And I was like, great. So like, which was great because that section was weak and he knew like this needs to be reworked. And so I went to work on it and I, I think I brought him back one or two different versions. And then eventually we found one that worked. And, um, and then they, they performed it in the fall and like, I wanted to throw up. I was so nervous when they passed that score out I, that I almost pretended that I need to go to the bathroom just to get out of being in the room while it happened. Um, it was just major anxiety. It's very vulnerable. And, mm-hmm. but fortunately my peers were really supportive and they sang it well and it was a really great experience. And then I, I kept writing more. And then that community was so loving my voice teacher, she saw this happening and she said, Andrea, you're going to write your English set for your senior recital. And then the teacher who was a percussion instructor who also composed that I was taking applied composition with, he's like, well, if you're going to write your English set, then we're going to include some instruments and we're going to include, you know, you at least two other instruments from piano. And one of those movements has to be fast because I want to write everything that was <laughs> slow. And so, you know, and so like this, it was a whole village, right? Like, that phrase of people who sort of nurtured me in that season. You had a great support system from all these people. What a wonderful um, yeah. what thing to happen. Um, so, yeah, so you knew you wanted to write music pretty early on. Or I, ca- I cannot believe, can I just say, I can't believe that uh, your, it was your voice teacher, right, that said, oh, you can go ahead and write the music that you're going to sing for your recital. Yeah, well, only for that one set. I still have, but my mind, I was like, well, okay, I can, you know, I still have like, I don't know, I had like a German, Italian, and French or mm-hmm. something. Like, there were like two other language sets. But I was like, this is a no brainer because at least this one will be memorized already. But she, Holly Ruth is still, she's still family. Like, I have a key to her house. Like, literally, we'll go when I'm in Arkansas and visit with her and her husband. And um, it's just, the warmest. Yeah. But no, that was a leap for her to be like, <laughs> she, I don't know. She's a gift of the human. Well, and how great that she saw your ability and she used that within the context of being your voice teacher, how creative and um, supportive yeah. in ways that so many would collaborative. So collaborative. Yes, absolutely. So how then, as you move forward with your education, do you think you're going to balance being a choir director and someone who possibly writes music? Well, it was a hobby. I mean, it was like, this is a fun thing that I do alongside teaching. Teaching is what I want to do initially, right? (laughs) This is how, and I taught I taught eight years in the public school and loved it. And all of that time, like my Venn diagram of, teacher conductor and composer like started to to i mean the consult the composing was absorbing a lot more and i um i was enjoying that uh, but i was also feeling like you know it's a lot like all of this balancing this all so i made the decision to to go get my master's and then i was going to go on and get my doctorate um and it wasn't and i loved those students but i can still picture the curve of the road that i was driving on on the way to school when it just, I just thought, I think I can do this job in my sleep. And I think I need a new challenge. And it just sort of felt like that. And so I took that leap and sold my house and moved to have roommates in Lawrence, Kansas and become a master's student. Like when I was, I don't know, I don't know how old I was. I should know that. I left in 2008. I was born in 77. Somebody can do the math. <laughs> but wait, anyway, stop, I left wait, and hold I, up. 
You were born in 77. Stop yes. that. You're lying to me right now. There's no, you look. No, I'm telling. You look way younger than I this look. Is I, well, like, and I let that out. And like, this is funny because like people will reach out for my birth year for, um, to put on programs. And I don't give that out anymore. Like I'm telling you on a podcast because like that was my choice. And I, I it's you and I talking. But the reason that I, I don't do it for two reasons. One is that for the longest, my social was everywhere because every time you do a gig, they're like, fill out this W9, mm-hmm, right? And mm-hmm. now I've incorporated, but I still am giving a lot of personal info out all the time. And they don't need my birth year on top of that. And then also, um, because ageism is real is another reason. But then also because there's no other, there's no, I've yet to have anyone give me a good rationale for it. I understand composers that are dead. And we want to know what era they came from. But everybody who's alive right now is alive right now. We know what they came from. The only possible reason we could have is to be like, oh, my God, look how young they are. Well, oh, my God, they're older than I thought they were. Like, there's literally, it's satiating our curiosity, I think. And I tell people this, and people are like, no, this is the way we do it. It's scholarly. And I'm like, okay, why? <laughs> and they can't ever answer that part. I Okay, so... so- is it anyway? Is, sorry, I, that was a big sidebar. No, I'm so excited that you did that. Like, this is awesome. Um, is it ageist for me then? Because I really want to learn how to be sensitive to different things that I, you know, I otherwise wouldn't know how to be. See, I didn't expect you to give me your, you know, when you were born, but I swear to you, Andrea, I would think I'm talking to like a 32 year old. And so when you said, Oh, that's great. My husband, we're besties I'm now, Megan. You, my husband, <laughs> my husband was born in 78 so when you said 77 it was like wait wait huh you know so i i hope yeah. that that isn't ageist or offensive for me to say to you no, how young no, you it's, look. It, i'll take it all day <laughs> like this is my thank thank my mom for her side of the family and their genes because yeah but no i, I it doesn't it doesn't bother me but i also feel like I do feel like, and there, there, it's not just me. There are other composers, and, I, and they wouldn't mind me saying their name, but Paul Caldwell, Susan Brumfield, they're, they're buddies that are in the fight with me, too. And, like, and, and, and more and more schools have started going to, like, putting the year a piece was published or, or writing just the word living by the composer's name, which also is fine. It gives you that information. Without, and then just putting dates for, for those people who aren't here anymore. But um, anyway, it's a fun, fun thing to ponder. Yeah, it's something I've never thought about. But if you put the the age of a living person, then you're giving them something to think about that doesn't matter when you're sitting there looking at a program and you're yeah. getting ready to experience a piece of music. You're you're making judgment also, on something that isn't relevant. And there's no other like, can you tell me any other situation where you could walk up to someone and go, I need to know your birth year and I'm going to put it on this form and thousands of people are going to stare at it. And know your age. Like, are you cool with that? <laughs> like, this Mm-mm. is not. I mean, and I really like. I just told you. Obviously, like, I don't have a problem so much telling people my age. It's just when people dictate to me that that I get a little fired up and rebellious, and I'm like, hmm. why? <laughs> so anyway. Um, okay, so we're now you've taught for eight years and, and uh, you wanted a new challenge. So you decided to leave teaching. And then um, did you know right away, I'm going to move from teaching to composing? No, I, I'll actually all of this was I'm going to teach but at a higher level. Um, mm. And so I, I my, my master's was in choral conducting at the University of Kansas. Then I went to Michigan State University. I got a PhD in music education with a choral conducting cognate. Um, and, and like, that was it. I wanted, to, I wanted to continue composing. And composing was, the, you know, like it was a gift because in my doctorate, when all, all of my friends had church choir jobs and my job was commissions, which mm. was not normal and also wonderful. <laughs> and so, um, so I did that. And, um, and then I taught one year at, the Ohio State University from 2013 to 2014. And then from 20 to 14 to 2017 was at the University of Colorado Boulder. And during that time, the composing was really becoming more demanding as well as like now there are conducting gigs coming my way, right? Mm. And so juggling all of that was just feeling like a lot. And um, and actually Jake Rinstead, uh, the composer, was pretty instrumental in me sort of shifting into full-time composing. Hmm. We overlapped at an event in Iowa and sat down for chatting. And he said, um, 
I, I, I said, tell me how you're doing this. He's like, you're younger than me. Like, how are you full-time doing this? And he's like, you could so do this. He's like, what are you scared of? And I was like, well, what if people stop commissioning me? And he's like, do you have savings? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, do you think you'd get another job if those savings ran low? And I was like, yeah. And he says, what else are you scared of? Like he just shot down all of these things. He's a very old soul. And, um, and I went home and I crunched numbers and I was like, I could do this and I could have a life because I was feeling a bit like I was on a hamster wheel between the Academy and the gigs and the, the composing mm. was just a lot of nonstop musicking. And so that, so I, I did, I made the leap and now it's been what I led that in 2017 and now it's 2023. So it's gone. All right. That's awesome. And you are, uh, hopefully it's okay for me to say this. You are an introvert. So this works out really well for yeah. you, right? To have this alone time and get to compose. Well, yeah, but I've also learned, like, the pandemic taught us a thing or two about being introverts. <laughs> like, it happened, and I was like, yes, I've been training my whole life for this. Let me add it. I'm ready. And then until we weren't, until I realized I wasn't right, <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm depressed and anxious, mm. and I didn't even know this. And, like, when we started socializing again, I was really struggling with that. And so I'm really grateful to therapy. I'm really grateful to meditation, to a whole lot of self-care practices that have come in that have got me back in a really great place. Um, but yeah, I think that is a tricky thing when you're, when you're like totally comfortable alone, it's really easy <laughs> to be alone too much. And so now I'm really cognizant. Well, and this, I feel like I'm, please stop me and send me in a different direction, but I just finished doing three months. I say finished, I finished in mid June but from March to June, I, uh, most of those months, I was in Oregon at the University of Oregon um, covering for Dr. Sharon Paul, who was on sabbatical leave for that term. They're on a quarter system. And it was so wonderful mm -hmm. to be in community with singers and to connect in that way on a sort of long-term basis again. And I joked, she was having this wonderful sabbatical going all over Europe listening to choirs. And I was telling her, I'm having a reverse sabbatical. I'm working twice as hard, but I'm being as refreshed as you are. Mm. Like it is just a gift. And it made me realize how important that is. And so now I've come back to Kansas City to write, but I'm build I'm finding ways to build community into my daily existence that I didn't have before. Like at sometime next month I'm gonna start reading to third graders in the Kansas City public schools <laughs> once a week, like volunteering to do fun things like and I'm going to try and get out into KC choirs a little bit more, you know, just finding ways to connect. That is, it's important. That's great. So you're trying to find that balance now. You're trying to find yeah. that. I mean, just whatever. And I have, and I've, I've been expanding my friend groups and trying to just realizing like, yeah, how, how alive I felt in Oregon. And I, then I sat with that and said, what are the things that made me feel this alive? Okay, nature, community, connection, like, I have to keep those going. Mm. Obviously, the nature in Casey is, is present, but not quite like that of Oregon. Still grieving those trees a little bit. <laughs> so you had brought up Jake uh, Runstead, Runstead. Am I saying mm. that correctly? Yeah. Um, and I think so. I hope that's how I always said it. <laughs> but we're, we're both in trouble. We're safe if we say Jake. So you were talking to Jake. Um, and I was thinking back to earlier when you talked about something, oh, vulnerability, your first, you know, song mm. that you had revised and that your choir was singing yeah. something that is, um, so inspiring about both you and Jake is how vulnerable your music is. I mean, I was spending time this morning thinking if you had one word to describe Andrea Ramsey, what would it be? And vulnerable was the word. And I think that's what makes your music so incredible is that you allow yourself to be seen through your music in a way that mm. is very special and unique. So thank you because it's, I'm actually like tearing up a little bit just because I've been in rooms with women and we've sung your music and it's so moving for them and means so many Jeez. different things. We did, um, well, I sent you that poster, right? Of our, our women's choir did a, did a concert mm -hmm. and we titled it richer for her because that was sort of our like main focus piece, <laughs> but, but it was all about women, the whole thing. And, um, 
And so we did Richer for her and and we also did Anyone Can Sing and we opened with Anyone Can mm. Sing and oh my gosh, like, oh. and we talked about what does this mean beyond when you say Anyone Can Sing, what else could this mean? And they got into all sorts of things about, well, just using your voice, speaking up, like all these things. And it was like, you just open your mouth. And it's and uh, mm-hmm. and make uh, and give shape to the sound. And so, like I said, I could just go on about this, but your vulnerability as a composer and a human being is is just very inspiring. Oh, that's so kind of you to say. And it means so much to me because I think vulnerability is the ticket, right, for almost everything. Like when we because when one of when one my the best principal I ever had was the most vulnerable um, she was the one who would stand in front of us and go, yeah, these things that are coming down from the state, this is tough. We're going to figure this out though. Mm. Like, I don't have all the answers right now, but I'm going to, we're going to sit down and we're going to, you know, it was, and like how refreshing, and then it gives you permission, like to not be perfect. And when you mess up to go and say, I really botched this, but I need to tell you, you know, if this parent comes to you, here's what happened, you know, whatever, whatever the case. Um, and then I think in music too, I think that's the greatest gift is if a teacher tells me um, that that any of my pieces sort of opened a portal for discussion or for something bigger in that classroom. Mm. That's really special. Um, yeah. So thank you for sharing that. When you're writing your pieces, how um, I have to think of how to phrase this question, because it's a question I'm thinking about as we're talking. So I'm trying to find words for it. Mm-hmm. Um, when you are writing a piece of music, how much are you intentionally trying to go for some level of depth in the meaning and how much of it is just you pouring out your own feelings onto a page? Like where, how much of it is like what you're aiming at the audience, like as writers, right? We want to consider the audience, but we also want to write things that matter to us. Where is that balance for you? I'm going to answer that, but I don't think it's going to quite be as neatly organized as, as your, your question sort of sends it in certain directions. And what it really is to me is finding a text that says something that matters to me or that I feel like I connect with and then saying, okay, there's already some music in this text, right? It has a rhythm when we speak those, those words, like there's a, there's a cadence or, a rhythm, you know, do I keep that? Do I elongate? Which words need more life, which words need to be emphasized, you know, and then it's playing with those sounds and then creating something from that text. Um, So for me, so much of my music, almost all of it, except for the piece, I have a piece, at least one with no text, (laughs) that's just sounds, but like anything that's a text, it's almost always that sort of dictates it. But then also my, that's the thing I'm very picky about with commissions. Um, with the exception of maybe a few commissions in the pandemic that I needed desperately. And I was like, yeah, I'll send whatever text. Although I shouldn't say that because now people will be like, was that mine? <laughs> but I, I always take suggestions from people. It's very rare. Like I always take suggestions from people. Um, and sometimes they have a great suggestion and we just run with it. But sometimes I will say, mm, this doesn't resonate. You know, how about this? And we'll go back and forth and we'll find a text that we love. Um, I've written text, but, uh, occasionally but like I've only just started owning that because um and this is this blew my mind when I read Dale Trumbor's book um Staying Composed she talked about this too because her parents I think one of her parents is an author one of her parents is an editor I'm probably getting that wrong but both of her parents have writing chops and but she heard growing up too like be careful be wary of music that says words and music bye and like I had that same talk to in my choral methods class like everybody sort of looked down if it says words and music bye it's probably cheesy or Mm. not very great or tried or whatever and eventually she said she started seeing she would see these lyrics and she would go I know I can do better than that (laughs) like I can at least write something better than so she started writing lyrics and she called that emotion it doesn't have a name but like the opposite of jealousy right because jealousy is just negative and gross but this feeling is like spurs you on to actually doing something that contributes <laughs> in a good way. And, um, and I, and I don't know that it was like that. It was more out of necessity. The first time that one time I wrote text because I, w- I was just feeling it. And it was a set of nature. I did um, these three, it's called from a river's edge. Mm-hmm. It was one of my first pieces, boozy and hawks. It's treble choirs, but there's a dragonfly movement and a, um, and a spider movement and a rope swing movement. And I wrote the texts for that and I owned them. 
because I was so young that it was like, it doesn't matter. I like, for some reason I was naive enough, like they're going to publish this. And it was simple because it was some of the, the dragonfly was just zooming sounds, you know, mm-hmm. it wasn't. Um, and then, and then I went, um, and then, then I got older and anxious and more scared about that. Right. I don't know. And, and after my mom passed, um, there's a piece called truth that a lot of tribal choirs perform, um, my roots are earth, muddy river and honeysuckle. And, um, and the, if you look at the score of the text is, is by a woman named Gardenia Bruce, but actually I wrote that text and I did it in a, in a distressed state of, I had about four days because I had confused the deadline. I thought the piece was due. I'd already asked for a 15 day extension because my mother had passed away that fall. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then, uh, I thought that, I thought that the piece was due January 15th. And then on December 26th, I pulled out the contract and realized that I had flipped it and the date of the piece that I had just mm-hmm. finished. Mm-hmm. And that actually it was due December 15th. And so now I only had four days with that 15 day extension to write it. So I just cried and I was like, how am I going to, and I gave up the, the dream of any kind of piano accompaniment, which I had had in my head. And I also, now I didn't have a text because, and I thought, what am I going to do? So I had written a lot of poems just processing the grief of losing my mom. And I found one and I thought, okay, I think I can make this a little more universal and a little less personal, even though it's still very personal. Mm. And, um, but I was so raw because the, the, you, you know, like any, cause I'm sure this works with podcasting too, but any, any craft, any activity, artsy thing we do, one of the most important things is being able to leave it and then come back and reevaluate it. And when you're writing and you come back, like you need that space, but I didn't have that space because I had to write this thing. So I was just like coming back, feeling sad about it and still going and trying to finish it. And um, so I was just really raw and I thought I can't handle, I knew it was going out to a ton of treble choirs because it was this women's chorus consortium through ACDA, Mm -hmm. which I think now is treble chorus or SA chorus. But um, so I I put um, a pseudonym on the text. Because I thought if they hate this, I don't want them to know that I wrote it. Oh wow! So Bruce is my mother's Bruce is my mother's maiden name, and Gardenia. She loved gardenias; they were her favorite flower. She probably killed like three gardenia bushes trying to grow them in Arkansas. But, um, and so yeah, and so and then there were a few other pieces where I used gardenia Bruce because I just didn't want to own it. Um, but then I I fessed up when we were trying to get a grant for suffrage cantata because I did want to write some of the lyrics mm. for that, and I was like, here I wrote these. <laughs> That's me. That's something that we could put that through. But anyhow, sorry, it was a long story. I'm not sure. Yeah. Oh, you don't, you never need to apologize. I'm loving everything that you have to say. It's just, it's genuine and authentic. Okay. So you, believe me, just speak, <laughs> just, just speak. And you're doing a wonderful job. So thank you. Um, sure. Uh, shoot. Again, I'm like, sort of like, okay, I had a question um, and I, I have so many questions listening to you speak just because, um, yeah, there's so many different things. You talked about grief and you talked about your mom. So, of course, I have these personal questions that are going through my head like, oh, is your like, did you sure, know, your, did you know your mom? Did you know your mom was going to pass away or was it was it unexpected? She had a she had a surgery that went wrong um, the week of auditions at Colorado. So literally mm-hmm. I had moved to a brand new state, was starting a brand new job. And the week of auditions, um, they're like, she's not coming out of anesthesia the the way we're expecting. And um, so my brother and I, like, from that end of August-ish time to October 6th when she passed, we're, like, trading weekends, going back to Little Rock. Like, We had family members there helping, too. Um, it was, yeah, she was having a heart valve replacement, which is a pretty, as far as open heart surgeries go, is a pretty routine one. Like, um, I know lots of people who have had family members who've had that surgery and gone through it, but in mom's instance, um, there, there was bits of calcification removed from the heart that hadn't been fully flushed out by the surgeon. And then when they restarted her heart, it was strokes too numerous to count. And, um, you know, and we had, we had three different um, law firms say this is malpractice this shouldn't have happened but because of her age bracket the burden of proof is too great for us to take this on and so it was a very complicated grief mm-hmm. um and so I remember my brother and I after my mom passed and this is real like we talk about I don't think we do grief well in this country 
honestly. Um, people are at their most wounded and we're like, hey, let's bring in everybody you haven't seen in forever and like have it. My mom hated funerals and she was very adamant. Like, I do not want a funeral. And it was one of the best gifts she could have given us, I think, at that time because we were hurting so much. So we gathered her immediate family because we knew as siblings we would want that closure. And we had a visitation just with immediate family for their sake of closure. Mm. Um, and and then we were, I, my brother and I were staying in an airport hotel and we ordered a pizza and we got a six pack of beer and we made a pact over the pizza and the beer that when, as soon as we got back to our universities, we would both take advantage of the grief counseling available to us there. Mm. And it was the best decision either of us could have made because there was so much to walk through. And it was so good as a young academic, right? Like in my first, no, sorry, second academic job, but in a, a brand new job in a new state to put, try and push through a rehearsal. But no, at Thursday at four, I'm going in that room and I'm crying and it's going to be great. <laughs> and so uh, to have a dedicated space to let all that out was really necessary. What did you learn about grief through that counseling well, I learned, um, oh, through the counseling. Sorry, I was thinking the whole semester. Well, the um, whole, I mean, you can comment on any of it, I because... The biggest, yeah. Well, the, the biggest lesson I learned, well, in terms of teaching grief, there's just no space for facade. So in some ways, it, it might have been a small gift um, in terms of connecting with my students more quickly, because you just don't have the energy to put on mm -hmm. airs. And... Um, um, but in terms of thing, the thing I took most from grief counseling was, um, I, there was a lot, I had a lot of anger. I had a lot of sadness. Um, I was great at expressing the sadness. The anger was hard for me because you're not socialized as a young woman in the South that for, that's an emotion for you. Mm. Like that is, you, you don't, you don't get angry. Like it's not becoming right. <laughs> and, and you don't want to, and in my mind, I thought I'm going to become a bitter person. Like if I feel anger, like I don't want to be some bitter person my whole life. And my, my grief counselor, to her credit, she said, no. She said, you have to feel this. She's like, if you mean scream, yell into a pillow, write an angry poem, whatever, you've got to feel it. And she said, it will burn clean. But if you don't feel it, you're going to come back to me in 15 years with even bigger problems. So you go and you feel that anger. And she was right. So I wrote some really angry poems that if anyone ever saw, they would be like, whoa. But, uh, but it it went right through um, like it was supposed to. She said, um, uh, I've never heard it put this way, burn clean. It will burn clean because mm -hmm. I, with my therapist, it was the same thing with, I mean, it's a different situation, but it, she said to me, yeah. you have to feel the anger at some point to get through this. Yeah. And I, it's so weird because I feel like when we're growing up, we're not evaluating our feelings. And in fact, we're trying to control them a lot, right? We're looking around at the mm -hmm. world and going, okay, what gets me love? What gets me attention? What gets me this, you know? And so we do sort of put on that facade. And now I feel like I'm always evaluating like, okay, it's okay to cry. In fact, I say that crying is a tool. So I say, okay, I need to cry this out and then I can move on. It's it doesn't make me dwell on it more. It like allows me to move through it. So when you said the it burns clean, I thought, wow, that is just really powerful. It's, it was a great phrase. Like it, I needed that because I really was convinced in my head I'm gonna become some crotchety, angry person my whole life if I felt this anger, which is strange, but true. So did um, going through all of this affect your work? Oh yeah, in a huge way. Um, there's also there. I, you know, one thing I didn't say about grief, and then I'll move on, is that there's sort of a silver side of grief that we don't really talk about a lot, which is um, that everything that's beautiful becomes way more beautiful mm. in that season of grief. Like you're hurting and you're wounded, and so something as simple as like hearing, like that's what would happen. Is my choir would sing a piece, and I would be like. And it wouldn't be perfect, but it would just feel so much more meaningful and beautiful. Or you would see a sunrise or something, you know, it just felt um, more beautiful. Um, yeah, it impacted my work. I mean, I was exhausted. You know, the weird thing is the fall when it all happened, I probably did better work then than in the spring because in the spring, the adrenaline had worn off. So in the fall, like you're just, you're pushing through, right? It's survival. 
But by the spring, um, all of those, whatever's, you know, ramped up in your body to get you through this survival stuff, like has sort of passed. And it was just fatigue and it was really, it was really hard. Um, yeah. I don't have anything really poetic. It was tough. We have tough seasons in life sometimes and we walk through them and, and, um, and that was one of them. That spring was really hard. How much are you writing typically? Like how many pieces do you compose in a year? Um, because I was thinking when you went through this time period and you said it was a, you know, like a lower period or you weren't able to, to put out as much, um, you know, what is that like for you? What is your typical like output? Well, you know, when I was teaching, that was very different. Um, now doing full time, I, I usually have one commission a month. If I'm, if I'm just doing standard three and a half minute to five minute octavos, mm-hmm. right? Um, obviously, if I have a larger work, like when I did Suffrage Cantata, that was like probably a year of research alongside writing other projects. And then um, I went from when the pandemic started, March, whatever that weekend was, 2020 to August 2020 writing that work because it was 40 minutes long but on the whole um and I don't always need like right now I'm sort of doubled up I have a piece that I'm gonna finish around September 1st ish and a piece that I'm gonna finish around September 15th ish so sometimes if I get a little behind like I know usually I can do a piece in two weeks uh three weeks but I like to give myself a month because sometimes things don't go according to plan and (laughs) and I don't want to be late um, I don't think that's a good look. So, um, yeah. Um, how do you get yourself inspired if you're feeling like, cause some days when we're writing and again, like I was telling you earlier that you write music, I don't write music, but I write other things and we don't always feel inspired. Sometimes we're just sitting and it just feels like, um, like, Oh God, is this going to be anything? Is it going to be good? Um, do you feel a lot of that? It's pretty fast. What you just described, writing a piece in three weeks, in a month. Do you uh, face mm-hmm. doubt on the pieces that you're writing? Or if you're feeling uninspired, yeah. do you have a method that do you put on some music? Or, you know, what do you do to keep yourself moving through that? I think the longer I've done it, the more I just know that be, that's part of the process is that there's going to be a place where I hit a wall or two or three and you're like, okay, this is the wall and let's do some things. And usually it means I've been too absorbed in this. I need to walk away and like have an actual life, like go for some walks, do some things um, to sort of refill the tank. Um, if I don't have the luxury of that, maybe I just lie down and take a nap or I meditate for a bit or whatever and come back. Um, if I'm stuck, there are a few ways, like sometimes, um, I'll try to put limitations on things like, okay, if I'm going to get out of this transition, but using only one note, what would that be? Or if I'm going to do, you know, like, and sometimes that will jar something loose. Um, but really like, I think more than anything, patience helps. Like if I, if I can take a break, that's that's usually the ticket. And also sometimes just let it, sometimes it's, I'm not letting my mind wander enough. Mm. Um, it's amazing. Um, I, I can't remember. It was an NPR podcast and they were talking about creativity and this particular researcher was saying, you can stare at a wall for 15 minutes and, and ideas will come to you. And I thought, I bet that's true. Like we don't have enough space in our days now because we filled everything with you know, any possible moment where our mind can be wandering, we can pick up that phone and it doesn't have to wander, right? We can choose what we want to consume, but actually our brain needs that rest and that's how we generate ideas. And so I thought, I'm going to try this. And I went and sat in my hallway and stared at this wall and I wasn't even five minutes and I was like getting ideas and I was like, this is crazy. And so, so yeah, so letting the mind wander is another tool. This sort of ties into one of the questions I had sent you, which was walk us through the process of, you know, you find a text that you, it speaks to you and you want to use it and put it into music. Then how, how does your brain work? Like, how do, how do melodies come to you? How, what do you focus on first? You know, do you focus on like sort of a chorus idea, like your main um, motive? Just walk us through that process of writing a piece of music. Yeah, let's make this functional. Hang on. I'm going to grab, and hopefully this is not too much of a spoiler alert, but right now I'm working on a set of little miniatures on text from Alice in Wonderland for Paul Caldwell and his Seattle Women's Chorus. And I set, I've set 
Um, have I set three of them now? Yeah, I've set three of them now. Um, and I have three more texts to set. Um, the last one that I just set was the little verse, How doth the little crocodile improve his shining tail and pour the waters of the Nile on every golden scale. Now that has a really meter. Um, and I did How doth the little crocodile improve his shining tail. I pretty much kept the speech rhythm of that. Um, and how neat Miss Francis calls. And anyway, but I have this whole, I played with those words a little bit, but I kept almost all the speech rhythm there. And now I have three other texts to set. This one I really like. If you drink too much, if you drink much from a bottle mark poison, it is certain to disagree with you sooner or later. <laughs> or I don't know the meaning of half those long words. And what's more, I don't believe you do either. <laughs> or the last one, everybody has won and all must have prizes. And maybe I'll take that one because it's a short example. So we just take everybody has won and all must have prizes. And I have to set this. I haven't figured it out yet. But everybody has won and all must have prizes. Now I could just set that, right? Um, everybody has won and all must have prizes. Something like that where you're just, I, this is what I usually do is I just play with it. Now that's not a great melody or <laughs> one that I'm going to keep, but like that, sort of as an idea, but probably in this case, everybody has won. It feels like there's a natural pause there before the and, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe I'm going to put a rest in. Everybody has won. One actually feels really traumatic. Not traumatic, but traumatic. Make <laughs> sure because it came out the wrong way, I think. Um, so it could be something where we make that note like a big, cool chord, or it could be louder or longer. You know, you could have this everybody has won something like that you know and the piano comes you know up bringing up the rear with something really exciting and flourishy and then and all must have prizes you know something like punchline-ish mm -hmm. i don't know actually maybe it'll be exactly like that this is why i wanted to play with this because i don't maybe i'll get the idea while i'm talking with you um but, but it doesn't have to be that way. If I wanted to put the emphasis on everybody, then I can go back and play with it a different way. And I can do, everybody has one, right? Um, and who knows? But it's, it's like that. It's for me. It is taking the text, playing with possibility mm -hmm. until you find the possibility that you go, oh, okay, I'm going to go take this to the piano and flush it out and see what it can become. Mm -hmm. um, and then... And that is, that's the, now that's the grind that there are moments where there's a little flash of inspiration. You're in the car and you're just humming a thing and you're like, oh, this is an earworm. I'm going to sing this into my phone and save it for later. And so sometimes there are little spontaneous bits that come to me. So I don't want to pretend that doesn't happen, but it is nowhere near like what you, you see the Mozart thing, right? Where he's got a whole symphony. Is it like that? No, that is not me. I am like, do you want to like, and I'm not Beethoven either but like i'm much closer to those scribbly manuscripts than mozart's perfect things so um anyway yeah did that answer your question yeah okay it was great it was great and i loved just watching your process because i think it's really important for people to know that what they see what they get your octavo they're they're working on your music and they think oh my gosh this is incredible and i think people imagine that this just comes out of you you know, that you have all this beauty within you and it just pours out onto the page. And so it's good for people to know there is the grind. You know, there is the you're, you're experimenting with it. You're not just it's not just like your first idea is your best idea. Um, there are a lot of misconceptions about about art in that way, about the work that it takes mm -hmm. to make something beautiful. So I'm really glad that you uh, that you brought that up. Um I have to say, this has been a really lovely conversation. And I mean, I wrote these questions, but then we went off in this other direction, which is great because that's way better yeah, than what great. I had planned, you know? And um, it's all good. so I, I guess I would finish with asking you, um, you know, is there anything, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wish I would have asked you? I never know how to answer that because I don't know what's interesting. I feel like we are also it's so easy for us to look at the world and see things and sometimes really hard to look at ourselves and go, what is the thing that's interesting that I should share? <laughs> I, you know, I don't, I don't know that. So I, I, I would turn to you. You can ask any question you want. Like, um, Oh yeah. Cause I really, <laughs> I'm looking, I don't know. I, well, and, well, and to be honest with you too, you know, you talk about the grind, right? That question I, I mm. normally set up toward the end for anybody 
because I want to give them an opportunity to have that freedom. And sometimes people that works really well mm. with people and sometimes they're like, no, I need you to guide me. And so I'm more of like a, I need you to guide me person. If you give me all the options, I can't yeah. choose any of them. Yeah. I can't choose, the, I can't choose any of them. I like it so so I, I should have known better, but okay. So this is a very, it's not an easy question, but maybe, maybe it will be for you, but bring it. Um, I'm ready. We'll see. What do you want your legacy to be? Well, this one is hard. Um, what I hope is that the legacy is like the ripple effect. Like whether it's a rippling out of students that I've taught and how they've poured that into other students or just into their workplaces and their lives or their patronage of the arts, whatever it is, um, or whether or the ripple effect of whatever these pieces are, if they open conversation in classrooms, if they help teachers connect a pedagogical construct to the to the piece or sight read it or something because it's based off a scale or there's you know whatever the thing is um i think in the end that i want there to be some some impact in my legacy um when it comes to music and then maybe what i don't think and ever there's never going to be a oh andrea ramsey is like this great like i know i know where my place is and it but and it's in a it's nestled in a place of working with school courses could be university choirs too children's choirs i'm like a teaching composer and i know that that's but i also think there are things that are artful like i don't think i think we have those teaching composers that i don't know i and and i so i know that i'm in this niche there's not going to be down the road this Oh, and then there was Bach, and then there was Andrea Ramsey. Like that is not, and I and I'm perfectly fine with that. What I want is for there to be meaning made that matters through those pieces, and that we take these these ordinary school days, and then here's some great beauty that you can shape with these students while they're there for that season. Um, think that. Thank you for being so vulnerable about, um, you know, your life. And uh, this was just really, really lovely. It was fun, Megan. It was really easy to talk to you. Like, this was great. Like, sometimes these things are weird. Not because, but like people come in like, I don't know, like stilted or extra formal or like, and it felt, this felt very conversational. And so I appreciate, I appreciate that too. It was really fun to visit with you. Thank you for listening to Sing, Coach, Conduct. We hope you enjoyed the show. You can contact Megan Ferrison on Facebook or Instagram or by emailing thesingingconductor at gmail.com.